the impact that her choices that she made in this life actually had an influence on people that were 30 degrees removed from herself, which is essentially like a ripple effect. And it could be small things, you know, giving someone a smile when you're ordering something or seeing someone on a bus. And something small like that was actually having an impact. She could see the story of that person and what led them to that day, that moment, and how that smile actually like changed that, that person's life that day because they needed that at that time. So with your film, After Dark, clearly it's about near-death experiences and you're, you've been exploring that for several years. I want to tackle, of course, you know, what the basis of the, your project is diving into outside of the obvious of near-death experiences. But what drew you into near-death experiences and what are you accomplishing with this, with this series? Is it, uh, are you just trying to build awareness around near-death experiences? Are you trying to prove it in some sense? What is your mission with After Death? Yeah, so I created After Death actually in response to loss, um, personal loss. So in 2012, my brother-in-law was uh, killed by a drunk driver. He was uh, 36 years old and was very close to him. I knew him for a number of years. He's my wife's only sibling. So, you know, kind of seeing that from uh, her family, just kind of the de- devastating loss of, of losing her only, you know, only sibling, that part of you know her life is, is like, you know, just stopped, right? She can't even, you know, talk about her childhood and all that kind of stuff. And I wasn't there for that. So now she has no one to kind of, you know, to, you know, talk about that with. And so that kind of devastating loss really kind of challenged me and kind of maybe asked questions about the reality of, of life after. So I actually grew up in a, in a Christian home and went to church all my life. And, uh, you know, I definitely heard stories in the Bible about, you know, heaven. And, you know, actually, I believed in God and, and heaven uh, growing up. But in 2012, I think that just kind of all kind of came apart. I really wasn't sure what I believed at that time. And, uh, you know, I really needed to know for myself, uh, just personally, is there something after or not? And so um, as I was asking those questions, uh, you know, I had some friends and family around me that were like, oh, you know, hey, there's these stories of, you know, books of people who had had these narrative experiences. And I think you would find it really helpful. And uh, I, I wasn't sure what to make of it at first. And I'm not a huge uh, book guy. <laughs> My medium, you know, is is more just in, in the visual, and so it was actually. An, I didn't really dive into the books yet until um, I came across an audio interview. Actually, at one point, someone gave me a, I think it was a CD. At some point, it was uh, two or three people's just just a long form interview, you know, like a podcast uh, before it was podcasts, <laughs> and uh, I just I heard this guy's story. He was a medical doctor, and he had fallen two stories out of a building and basically like split his head open, blood out. And he's talking about, you know, in such great detail, uh, he was so super articulate and he's talking about basically his spirit form or his spirit body and all of this, you know, like including like seeing his body and the whole kind of, you know, like his, his friends and family kind of seeing, you know, coming, coming in contact with his body on, on, uh, on the sidewalk and, and then, uh, you know, this amazing sort of heavenly encounter that he had. Um, and I just never heard anything like this before. But it was it was the way he's describing it, but it was also like the sincerity in his voice that was just, I mean, after listening to it, I couldn't let it go. You know, it was like weeks after. I was just like, it's replaying in my head. And so I was like, okay, I think I got to give these books a try. 
And I started reading, you know, of these accounts and near to the experiences. And I think it was something like 30 books later between my, myself, my wife, and my mother-in-law. And uh, I just couldn't help but notice. It was like, it's, it's, it's interesting to have one account, but, you know, to have 30 accounts... And these seemed to be very different people. And I wasn't sure at that time, like, do they know each other? <laughs> Are they corroborating the story in some way? But they're all talking about something that seems to like perfectly overlap, or, or at least very similarly have a lot of elements that overlap. And um, I think that's what really kind of struck me and grabbed my attention more than anything. You know, it was starting to give me hope, you know, that maybe I'm going to see my brother-in-law again. And uh, it was kind of moving beyond like wishful thinking. I was, you know, again, like raised in the church and like, this is what I believe. But, you know, faith is something that, you know, we don't have, we don't see and you can't experience in terms of like actually getting there. And you just kind of have faith for it. But, you know, obviously I realized my faith was very shallow um, when I was, you know, had gone through that loss. And these stories were just like, oh my goodness, like what's going on here? So I actually went out and told one person's story, Captain Dale Black, in 2017 in a short called Discovering Heaven at the time. Dale had uh, crashed into a, a Burbank, California monument called the Portal of the Fold of Wings. Uh, his plane had crashed, and it was a 10-passenger plane. There was two other pilots, and uh, the, both, both other pilots died. He, was, uh, he didn't show signs of vitals for about 16 minutes. And then he was uh, taken into a hospital along with one other pilot that also showed vitals. They lost him along the way. And Dale, they were able to kind of keep stabilized after a period of time. And, you know, he lives here to talk about it. But he had this profound near to the experience where he's, you know, I think his, his memory was basically that he's about to impact this monument. They're about to hit this monument and he's kind of bracing for it. And the next moment, the next memory is that he's kind of floating above his body roughly 15 feet in the air and he's looking down and he notices like there's Chuck and Gene, these two other pilots. Gene is, I think, he, you know, he had basically been decapitated uh, and he knows he's he's dead. Um, there's no way of coming back from that. And then the other pilot, Chuck, was not moving. And then he wasn't sure why he was seeing this accident scene. He was just really confused. Then he looks over and sees himself and notices, oh, that's me. And so there was a moment of confusion, but he felt great. And he's wondering, why am I seeing myself? Because I'm here, I'm not there. And then he just realized, I think I'm dead. And he, he felt, you know, amazing. He wasn't, uh, he didn't have regrets. He, the only thing he, he was thinking about was at the time he was 19 years old, uh, he was pretty new as a pilot. And he was thinking about, um, you know, that's, that's kind of sad, you know, that I'm so, you know, I had I probably had a few more years, but okay. Just kind of accepting it. It's all right. No and big it, deal. Yeah. And then uh, he wasn't, he said he wasn't thinking about his family and he wasn't thinking about, you know, this devastating loss of the, obviously the impact of him being gone and what that would mean for others. He just felt great. And there was two angels that came uh, around him, and they 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 sort of uh, came beside him. And he, he describes these angels as as these tall beings uh, that were sort of like made of this goldish hue, uh, looked masculine in form, and yet kind of were, it wasn't they weren't particularly that that he knew that they were men, just you know more masculine in form. And then they just started ushering them up, and to what he he describes as sort of like interstellar space 
is what you know he is what he would guess is where he was kind of headed towards, but at a, at an insane uh, speed. And him as a pilot, you know, he's describing these things and he's so confused because he's like, the speed of uh, that I'm going, I should be feeling the impacts of you know the G force and all this kind of stuff. Like all, I don't feel movement and yet I'm moving at an incredible pace. <clears throat> and then he's coming upon basically like this this planet or this uh, this area. As he was going closer and closer to it, he was seeing these lights that were kind of coming from this uh, planet. He said like billions and billions of these lights that were shooting past him. And then he realized, oh, these are these are angels um, leaving the leaving this planet and go, going to Earth. And they're coming to, from Earth and to Earth and back and forth. And as he's getting closer and closer, it's just this this beautiful place made of light. And he would say it's it's different, you know, different quality than something like the sun. He would say uh, it's basically like the equivalent of a thousand burning suns. So it's it's this, uh, and and it's although that sounds, you know, terrifying to me, you know, visually. It's he he said it was this beautiful invitation of love. It was unconditional love, and he felt that that's home. It's like I'm returning home. This is where this is where I belong. Anyway, so, you know, his account was uh, amazing, you know, and, and I couldn't help but think of my brother-in-law again. And, you know, he, he died on impact and it just made me kind of think, are these kind of the experiences or is this the experience that he had in his first few moments after impact? It's beautiful how you're, you know, the, I was, thank you for answering the inspiration question is the fact that it comes from death and the exploration of what happens after. It, it, it makes me think in regards to, you know, I feel like I hear a lot of people try to not try to, they, they reject the idea of a near death experience and the, whether it's real or not, they're not sure about it, which, you know, is understandable right. in many ways. Do you think there's any correlation between, let's say, people's beliefs and what happens to them after? You know, some people I hear or I've heard encounters of people leaning into, okay, they kind of had these beliefs about heaven and that, and maybe that's what they're seeing. And mm -hmm. also in the respect of your project and making this film, do you kind of keep a, a foot in each door or do you feel sometimes that you're leaning into hoping that there is an afterlife that it kind of not distorts, but you're focusing on the how this is real. And are you, are you seeing anything that kind of shows the opposite despite what you might want to believe? Well, so the, the, the cool thing about the feature after death was two producers that I'm working with Jensen Jason from Cypher Studios they come at this from a very skeptical point of view. And if you ask Jason in the beginning when we were making this, he would say, if someone came forward and, and was telling him, hey, I died and had this experience and came back, he would just be like, no, you did, that doesn't happen. Um, and then Jen's probably even more skeptical that he just does, you know, he wasn't even sure if really what he believed about heaven or the reality of life after death in general. And actually he had, a, he would, growing up, he had kind of had a great fear of dying and he, you know, wasn't sure uh, you know, really, if there was something after. So we all kind of come at this from, you know, different perspectives. Me, of course, I'm, I, I've am i been working at this now for about seven years. So, you know, that many years into it, at some point, I, for me personally, I had become convinced. But, um, I mean, I still want to honor kind of the skeptical angle. It, the skeptical angle is, is a huge part to play in this film. And so we kind of came, we came at this not assuming anything. And I tried to bring myself back to the beginning stage of, you know, when I'm beginning to learn, because that's what this film is. It's kind of a, 
it's kind of a journey of discovery. It's kind of in the beginning. It doesn't like to your, to your question. It's like, we don't, we don't assume that yes, this is the case. And this is true going in, but we almost, you almost assume that it isn't going in. And so one of the hero characters in the film, Dr. Michael Sabum, he's a cardiologist and he had first heard of these near-death experiences in, in uh, the late 60s. And Dr. Raymond Moody's uh, book, Life After Life, was published. And I think it was one month after it was published, you know, he had a psychiatric social worker in, in, in the hospital that he worked with that was just like, hey, you know, have you heard of this book? Um, I think, you know, something interesting here. And he was like, he actually took it as a challenge. He's like, this isn't true. This does not happen. And he went around and asked a bunch of doctors if, if, uh, if they've heard of something like this, if any patients had come forward who clinically died from cardiac arrest and had these experiences, and none of them had heard of it. He said, no, it doesn't happen. So he's like, okay, as a cardiologist, I'm going to pick this apart. Like, it's, he's going to make it his mission to prove that this doesn't happen. And so um, he performed a study, uh, I think it was 120 patients initially, I want to say. I, I, I'm fuzzy on the exact number, but I, I believe it was somewhere around there. Of his own patients who clinically had, had cardiac arrest for a period of time, and then they were performing CPR. And the ones that, you know, it was successful and, and came back. He would interview, I think it was like a couple weeks later or something, just to, you know, see if they recalled anything uh, that happened during the resuscitation uh, effort and if there's any detail they can kind of bring forward. And a third patient that he spoke to, uh, sure enough, almost had verbatim described uh, exactly what happened in the room, but then had this profound spiritual experience that, you know, pretty much perfectly aligned with all the stories that were in Dr. Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life. And he was <laughs> kind of taken back. But then he, he didn't stop there. You know, he started, uh, he basically, he created a few different studies. One, more famously, is called the Atlanta study, which included Pam Reynolds' case, um, which, you know, we do have in the film. One thing that he, that he did was interesting was, uh, I mean, he's, he's a man of science. And he, he, so he's like, you know, how do you study something like this, right? The, the spiritual side to it, you can't prove. And I don't think we ever are going to be able to prove. And so the only thing that you can really measure is the out-of-body experience part of it. So if somebody is, you know, leaving their body at the point of uh, clinical death and they step out and they're observing details that can and in any way later be corroborated, then that's something of which we can at least measure and corroborate, right? That's, and then we can document. So he started to do that, but then he also had a test group of patients who actually didn't flatline, but were close, and uh, but were unconscious. And then, and so he took that group and was like, you know, describe to me details that were happening in, in the room. And he would ask them to just imagine it. And, you know, of course, the details were, you know, 0.2% or whatever was any accuracy at all. And I think it was something like 98% accuracy in the ones who actually had a near-death experience in terms of all the details that they were doing, the things that they were saying, the way they were doing the CPR. And, you know, most of the people, because this is, again, the late 60s, early 70s, they didn't, you know, there's no, there wasn't a lot of like television programs or anything that on, on you know, there's no ER, or no, <laughs> no TV programs on what happens in the operating room. And so they didn't have language for even what they were doing. CPR was still fairly new. Um, and so the, the procedures that they were doing, which included barbaric things by today's standard, 
you know, they, they have a, there's a massive needle that basically, uh, if they're putting like a, uh, whatever, or whatever it's called, not adrenaline, whatever the, they're basically poking some, you know, putting, putting a chemical in the heart and the needle is like massive. Like it's just hideous. There's, he has photos in his study of what they're using back then. And people were describing things like they're pounding on my chest. Like it's an Aztec Indian ritual, and they're shoving a shoving a tube down my mouth that looks like looks like something that you would you would put in an oil can. So they're using certain terms that delightful, uh, yeah, that they don't because they don't know what this is, right? This is like their first time seeing anything medical, and they honestly think that they're probably going to be locked up and put in a straitjacket for coming forward and talking about it because nobody's talking about this as far as they know. Nobody has come forward and had this experience, and so. Yeah, anyway, so the film kind of kind of goes from that perspective and not everyone in the film even believes in near-death experiences. You know, we, we interview multiple neurologists, uh, neuroscientists, and we of course have the cardiologist. We have an oncologist and surgeons in the film and uh, they're all kind of speaking from their own perspective uh, in terms of, you know, what happens and there's just, yeah, there's a lot of discovery in the film. So out of all the accounts that you've read and the people that you've had in your film that testify or share their testimony, if you will, in the courtroom, what, because you mentioned earlier about some certain patterns that overlay, what are some of the most consistent parts of a near-death experience that seem to overlap and lean towards, you know, the fact that it may be real? So in our film, we interviewed 14 different people who clinically died between seconds to an hour and 45 minutes is the longest that we have in our film. There are cases that are longer, but... I'm sorry, you said 45 minutes, they were dead? One hour, 45 minutes. One hour and 45 minutes, someone was clinically clinically dead. dead. Yeah, brain offline, heart stop. Is that like the longest? I've I've never heard of, I've never heard of over an hour. I've heard of cases that are, you know, way beyond that at multiple hours, but, um, so I was going to say it's really important probably for audiences to know with the film, we kind of had like these two layers of qualifications for the the stories we wanted to include. It was no offense to the people that had near to the experiences and and not that we don't necessarily believe them and all that, but the criteria that we kind of, um, had set forth to, to include the stories that we did in our film was one, there had to be a lot of evidence to back up their claim of having died. And that really kind of usually pertains to, to the type of accident it was or, or where it happened as to, you know, if there was evidence. So, uh, in some cases, uh, for example, we have, you know, eyewitnesses, uh, EMTs or, or doctors that were, you know, were, were present and pronounced them dead, uh, to verify that, or we have the medical transcripts we have to have something that kind of backs up their claim of that they clinically died. So that was one layer. And the other layer was, I was particularly interested in the people that basically had a lot to lose in coming forward and telling their story. You know, I, I think there's there's a lot of books out there and there's a lot of stories out there on near-death experiences. And uh, there's still part of me that's kind of skeptical um, on the claim, especially when it comes to, you know, uh, let's just say, for example, people come forward and say, you know, I spoke to God and he told me this and it's like this new revelation of whatever this is like, whatever it is. And it's, it need, we need to do this specific thing and then that's it, right? I just kind of took everything with a grain of salt when it came to near the experiences. But the, the people who we included in our film, um, the majority of them did have a lot to lose in terms of like the reputation. Uh, Dr. Mary Neal, who wrote the book To Heaven and Back, just to kind of paint a picture. So she's an orthopedic spine surgeon. And she's actually a she's introverted. She's very she's very private. 
She doesn't like really going into big crowds and talking about her story. That's not her thing. And she has her own private practice in, in Wyoming. So, you know, she's in a profession that she does not need book sales to, <laughs> to drive her income, right? This, this is, and, and, and because she's introverted, there's all, all these reasons to, to not want to kind of open up and share your story. And she's a doctor. So in that profession, you know, she's surrounded by only medical individuals in terms of her colleagues and friends. And she's coming forward and talking about this profound spiritual experience. You know, she stepped outside of her body and she drowned underwater for 30 minutes. She was pinned under a waterfall. Basically, her, her kayak ended up getting stuck under, the front end got stuck under some rocks. And the pressure of the 20-foot waterfall kept her fully submerged during that entire time. And I think it was a few minutes. She's counting time as she goes. And it's not unusual for someone to go off a waterfall and, and go underwater in a kayak. And she's, she's been doing this for years. She's very advanced in her kayak ability, abilities. And so normally, she, you know, you kind of get yourself out of the, the spray skirt and, and you know, you, you go down. You could hit yourself a bit on some rocks. That would be the danger. But, you know, if you have a helmet and all that. And so this is not unusual, but here it's just the trajectory and the way she's pinned is just keeping her stuck. And she's realizing, well, the only way she's going to be able to get out of this is for her legs to snap back the opposite direction. And that just wasn't happening. She has no physical like agency here. She's not able to like break herself free. She's stuck. And so a few minutes go by and she figures... I mean, I can't, and it's warm water. It's it's about 61 degrees or so Fahrenheit in southern Chile in, in, in their summertime, which is our winter here in, in North America. And she says, I must be dead. You know, uh, she's swallowed a bunch of water. Um, she's inhaling water. And she f- she's, she's kind of processing all these things, like, as a doctor, you know, like, okay, interesting. Like, I don't think I'm getting myself out of this. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm swallowing water down my lungs, uh, breathing in water. Like this plus this equals, I got yeah, to die at some point, right? And yet she's, as, as time goes on, she's feeling, uh, she's feeling more and more and more alive. And she's feeling better than she's ever felt in her entire life. And all of a sudden, she just kind of, as she's underwater, she's like, I don't think I'm getting myself out of this. And then she actually just, uh, she didn't really have like too much, she didn't really think too much about the spiritual, you know, stuff. She's a doctor and she's busy and that's her life. But here in this moment, all of a sudden just became this like reality that, you know, I I must be dead. And then she just said, you know what, God, um, like, if you're there, like your, your will be done. This is what she, she's saying in her head as she's underwater. Like, I'm just going to surrender like my will, like I, I can't, I can't willfully get myself out of this situation. And she didn't, uh, she wasn't begging for help. That wasn't entering her brain for whatever reason. It was just kind of surrendering. And she's like, whatever, like, I, I'm going to give it to you. And then she said she felt this overwhelming kind of comfort and peace come upon her. And she starts floating up out of her body. She's now above the, the waterfall, above the river. And she's seeing still her body pinned under under the water. And then she's starting to see the people downstream from her that she was kayaking with that are, you know, they're uh, looking for their friend Mary. They're wondering where she is. And they, they have a stopwatch and they're counting the time uh, from when, you know, they lost track of her. And at that point, I think it was like 14 minutes or something. It was the first time uh, she she noticed because uh, she, she could see all this, all this detail. And then at the same time, 
she's having this profound kind of spiritual experience over here where she says she's not sure if there were people or spirits or what they were, um, but they came to her almost like a welcoming party. She would describe them as like they, they've known and loved her, you know, all her life. And they're just welcoming her and ushering her into heaven. And there's this path that opens up, this pathway that's just full of this uh, beautiful array, array of flowers and just like colors everywhere. And, and, she, and she's, this is where she's being led down a path towards heaven. And, it, and she said, it's just, it's like in between, it's like at the accident scene and it's not floating up towards, towards outer stellar, or what interstellar space like Dale describes, but it's just like an immediate, here's a doorway, there's heaven. And so she's going towards that, but at the same time, she could also look back and see her, you know, bloated purple body, uh, which eventually did snap out after 30 minutes uh, of the of the kayak, floated downstream. But the way it did was, unfortunately, her legs did break the other way, uh, like her knees bent opposite to get out. And then she did smash up against rocks and actually so much so that her her um, life jacket uh, had had ripped off and gone downstream. And a friend that she was kayaking with who was standing in the river downstream just trying to see you know you know where are we going to find Mary and that person noticed the life jacket and went to grab it sort of as a as a as a memory like at least we're going to have Mary's life jacket to give to her husband you know who's going to be grieving and uh, as the person goes to grab the life jacket feels a body brush up against their leg and then pulls, you know, Mary's dead body out, out of the river. You know, it's just very traumatic, but she's seeing all that and yet feeling such peace and love over here. And then she comes back and then she's, she's told that she needs to share her story as part of the deal in terms of what, why she needs to go back. What do you mean part of the deal? Like that's the, the message she's getting or she's, what does yeah. that mean? She, she was given uh, specific instruction uh, as to why she could, why she had to go back, she she really didn't want to come back. She um, would she would argue that she didn't want to go back, but she was told a few things. One of them was she was given a life review, and so in her her life, which is a very common element to a near death experience, not everyone has one, but most do. Yeah, I've heard that some of my guests in my podcast have said the same thing. It seems to be one of the given patterns. It's very common, and so. Um, but hers is really interesting because it, I, we didn't. The other people who had these life reviews didn't have it to, to quite to this level. She was shown her life, and then also the life of people that were around her, uh, the backstory since they were born. So she would not only see her life and in the interaction that she had with people, but also the backstory of everyone that was around her. And then it broke out from there, and she was shown thirty degrees removed from herself. Which is just wild. Like she was shown, that doesn't mean 30 people out. That's 30 degrees out from herself. So these people that she's never going to meet. And the impact that her choices that she made in this life actually had an influence on people that were 30 degrees removed from herself. Which is essentially like a ripple effect. It's like choices that you make in this life and how that actually does impact other people. And it could be small things, you know, like it could be big things she... She became a doctor in California, and then she eventually moved to Wyoming to open up her practice. Obviously, that's going to have a different impact. She's going to have a different influence in Wyoming than she would do in California. It's not wrong, right, or wrong. It's just this is different, and this is a different you know, impact she can have over here. But it could be small in terms of just holding the door open for someone, you know, giving someone a smile when you're, when you're ordering something or seeing someone on a bus. 
And something small like that was actually having an impact. She could see the the story of that person and what led them to that day, that moment, and how that smile actually like changed that that person's life that day because they needed that at that time, you know, which is profound. And and actually, that's probably one of the biggest takeaways with the film in terms of the, of the life review is just like we don't know how much impact we have collectively here on Earth, right? And the time that we have here, if we're asking the question, is there life after death? And, and if there is, um, if we're kind of living with that perspective a little bit and we're thinking about the impact that we have here, you know, big or small, I think it kind of uh, puts things into perspective. And, and, and uh, you know, that's the change we hope people have when they come away. That's huge. And it's interesting, obviously, the way you just you pointed it together was the positive impact, but I think it also, not just to play devil's advocate for lack of better terms, you get those little decisions, those little things that you don't do, like you can choose to smile with someone then you made their day, but the choice not to smile that day obviously has, you know, the opposite effect. So it's like there's little tiny choices. Isn't that the, is that called the butterfly effect? Yeah, I think there's there's yeah something, something, like, something that. like that. Sure. It's, yeah, it's yeah. an Ashton Kutcher film, I think. But if I'm butchering, yeah, it, yeah. I think I'm butchering that <laughs> reference. But nevertheless, then, <laughs> I think I just ruined the podcast in one silly statement. Sorry, um, <laughs> but it is fascinating on how there are patterns. But I always wonder why some people see certain things and why some people don't. So I had uh, a woman on my podcast, Amber, who had a near death experience, and. She mentioned the life review, and she also mentioned that we're here to learn. And I've also heard some of my guests that I've had on talk about she felt the the need to spread the message. And I think that gets misunderstood. Some people, you know, the people on the other side of the coin say, oh, this person is trying to make a buck, do this or that. Right. Maybe. I don't know. I'm sure, you know, as many stories I believe are real, I'm sure there's, you can also find the ones that people are BSing. So I think that's just the nature of humans. So no matter what avenue you're looking at, you're going to find those flaws. But it is interesting as to why some people see certain things, because every one of the accounts you told me, even though there were similarities, there were a lot of differences. Like the one man you told me seemed way more dimethyltryptamine type floating through space, interstellar-like. And then you have people that are always focusing on the on more biblical references. It almost seems like assuming it's heaven. So have you, are there any stories that are people are not correlating strictly to heaven and per se Catholicism or a specific religion? Sure. Is yeah, it yeah. other differences that correlate to someone's beliefs, maybe they're Muslim or this or that, and they're seeing more correlations to their religious beliefs, or does it seem to be an over-encompassing umbrella there? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a great question. Again, we tried approaching this open hand, open-handedly uh, in terms of just wanting to, wanting to know and interviewing a variety of people um, but for me personally, that, you know, that it's very real that I want to know what happens. I just, you know, like who isn't, who isn't um, asking that question, know what happens after we die. But for me, it's just like, because of my loss, of course, I want to know if this is real or not, but, but also, you know, what are people experiencing? And, and, and in particularly, what are they experiencing outside of North America? So that was a question that we, we asked and we included in, in the film. Uh, so out of the 14, there's several people that we include that are coming from non-Western countries, uh, different religions, different backgrounds, uh, because just curious, you know, like in their cases, is it the same? Is it not? And so everyone kind of has like a different, uh, almost like vernacular. In some cases, it's, it's language too, right? Language, some people we interviewed, you know, uh, several people, English is not their first language. And if they can speak English, it's very broken. But, you know, they kind of have like different terminology for what they describe. Maybe not everyone would say, you know, the word heaven. 
Um, or And not everyone would say necessarily like, let's say Jesus or Christ um, using words like that, but they would say it's like I'm meeting a man of light. Let's just say if they're, if the, the, the descriptions I would say are the things that seem to overlap in, 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 in what they're seeing. And not everyone meets that man of light. You know, sometimes it's just, you know, dead family members or it's like, you know, these these spirits or angels or, or, or something like that. In some cases, there's none of that. It's like we, we've interviewed people that they kind of consciously are in a place that they might they might term like the void mm. is a common uh, term that kind of gets yeah. used. And it's like it's almost like a conscious awareness in uh, in total darkness. But for them, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't distressing or alarming. It was uh, actually peaceful. It was like, it was, it's just almost like this, not holding place, but it's, I don't know. It's, I don't know what that is. It's like they're in this con- like it's a conscious awareness and an emptiness. And then in some cases, like we interviewed one gentleman who that was, that's all it was. And then he came back and, and then a different woman that we interviewed Almost the same description, but there was a voice that was speaking to her, and just it was it was all affirming and and uh, encouraging, and then it was like it's not your time, and then you know she comes back. But then we've also interviewed people, which we've included in the film, that they seem to go to uh, by description a similar place, uh, but to them it was actually alarming or distressing, you know. So out of the fourteen accounts, we include three people who had. Uh, what they might describe as hellish near-death experiences. But, you know, hell isn't always the term that gets used. It's typically, you know, it's just something that someone comes back and has PTSD from. It's it's very distressing and alarming. Yeah, what's up with that? What's up with the the, ne- the negative experience? I had another woman, uh, I think Kathy, Kathy McDaniel. Um, okay. she, she, she said she saw heaven and hell. So great, whatever you want to call it, heaven, hell, this or that. But she had a, yeah. she had a gnarly experience for... I don't know. That's, sorry, that's my Jersey uh, terminology. There, it's <laughs> it, it was terrifying, and I just I, you you don't hear those stories very often. I feel like yeah. I think it seems to usually be overwhelmingly powerful. But I mean, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time here. But what is what is the significance behind those hellish experiences? Is that a a, fig, a figment of our imagination, or do you think that's a real place? Well, I mean. All I can say is, you know, the, the people that we interviewed, right? Like, I can only only speak to. It's not that I've interviewed every single person that's had an near-death experience, but personally, I think I've interviewed something like thirty different people, and of that, there was sort of this ratio of I think five or something that had a what you would might call a hell, hellish near-death experience. Um, so, and that may that's probably not going to perfectly describe what the actual ratio is. But there are studies out there, like Dr. Bruce Grayson had actually done one, which indicated that there was 23% of people who who had, I think it was a study of 1,200 or 1,300 people who had near-death experiences, and of that, 23% had reported that they were uh, distressing near-death experiences. There's not a lot of studies on it, uh, on its own. Uh, Nancy Bush, who she wrote uh, a few books on only distressing or hellish near-death experiences, uh, because she herself had one, and she's trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. There doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in it. Uh, I think on on both the end of the you know peop- the audiences and and readers, uh, because it's like what the heck is that? And then also for the people who've had that, I think there's there's so much reasons to not come forward and and share their experience, right? Because 
somebody comes forward and says they had a hellish experience, I think the next, you know, logical thing from from someone hearing that story is like, well, why did you why did you have that? Like how bad of a person are you or whatever? Yeah, where's the straitjacket? Yeah, there's like typically obviously very negative connotations with it. And and it's usually f- filled with shame and guilt. Um so there's kind of there's really no reason to come forward and share that experience, right? But in terms of, you know, why why that's happening, honestly David, it's like I I can't I can't say for sure, right? I guess the only good takeaway would be from the people that at least we included in our film so one person in particular uh, had only basically thought of himself, he had only selfish motive, only thinking of himself. And so he, he might love other people or want to be around people, but it's always with selfish motive. It's only thinking of how can he, you know, get more out of something in life uh, for himself. And so this is the place that he ended up when he had his near-death experience, but it didn't end there. So... In that place, basically, it's like the opposite of what people are describing when they might say like a heaven experience. They might say they're in a place that's like unconditional love is a very typical term that's used. And they would say it's like a love that we can never experience here on earth. You know, like they they are known and loved in a way that's like beyond what, you know, a, a good parent might might feel towards their kid. It's just this kind of overwhelming, overpowering love. And the opposite is felt in the other place where it's death, it's hopelessness, it's all of the pain and, and experiences that you might feel here on earth, but it's void of any of the good. It doesn't have both good and bad. It's only the bad. In that place, though, a few people that we interviewed basically had called out for help to get them out of that. And there is sort of a, a redemption story there. So one individual, uh, he had basically just woken up from the hellish experience and he was so thankful to be alive. He given a second chance at life and he's thinking about differently. Think about life differently. He's only wanting to live life selflessly now. You know, he only wants to think about other people and love on other people, right? And so, you know, for me, I, th- I think that, that it's only good that that person's now walking away and trying to live their life, you know, more positively. And then there's two other individuals that, like you were saying, earlier that had hellish experiences, but are also shown heaven experiences. It was both. They were seeing both ends of the spectrum. And um, I would say out of all the near-death experiences that I've read and, and people that I've interviewed, it seems like everyone's kind of just getting a little, like this is the threshold of death, this sort of in-between state uh, in the process of dying as, as their body's going to, to final physical death. And I think all of these are just kind of pointing to just a glimpse of what this realm or the spiritual realm is and what it, what it all entails. I think they're all just given little glimpses. Why someone gets this and why someone gets that, I don't know. Um, I mean, that's more maybe a, a more of a spiritual or philosophical question. And we don't make it very apparent, I guess, in the film. It's like we want audiences to walk away with their own kind of conclusions and asking questions and things like that, right? And the film, After Death, really kind of just, it kind of opens the door for that, like I think this film is perfect for people who haven't really get considered any spiritual reality at all. They're they're not sure that there's anything beyond just the physical brain dying. I think this is the perfect film to kind of just cracks the door open a little bit. And for people like me who who lost someone, I think the film offers a tremendous amount of hope. You know that that we're going to see our loved ones again. I love it, man. I think uh, from I mean again I th- the way you're 
you're explaining to me how you approach the film. It seems like a real honest, proper journalistic approach, which I think proper journalism is partially gone out the window these days and maybe in mainstream sure. media. So it's nice to have, uh, I mean, I'm not a journalist, but my understanding is it should be presented with whatever information, evidence you can bring and let the person interpret it. So I love the approach of how you're having, you know, both sides, people of skepticism and then people leaning towards your side or you know, hope it's true and maybe want to believe it and this, that, and the other. So yeah. you're seeing both approaches and you're allowing the audience to interpret it themselves. And I think that's a big part of my conversations in general and what I do bring people like you to share, especially near-death experiences, is, you know, I see in the comments section all the time, this doesn't prove anything. And sometimes I don't engage, but sometimes it's fun to engage because I can't help it. And I'm just like, well, <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't a court of law. This, I'm not bringing this person on to necessarily prove. Like, this isn't to sure. prove it. Like, I'm asking, I would love to see evidence and help me understand why you think it, this and that. But the approach to let people interpret it themselves is exciting. So I want to congratulate you on putting this together. Well, thanks, Stephen. Tell people how they can watch your film, find it, and and all that good stuff. Yeah, so uh, we have a site called, it's, the URL is angel.com slash after death, just the name of the film. I mean, you could probably just Google after death too if, if, you, if you couldn't remember that, but angel.com slash after death. Uh, that page brings you to um, an area where, where you can see your, your nearest local listings in the theater. So, you know, we're, we're coming out at 2,700 screens across Canada and the United States, which for a documentary is, you know, unheard of. Uh, we're in, it's actually a top five all-time release in terms of theater count. And really our competitors are mostly musical uh, events, uh, which, you know, is kind of obviously very different than, than a typical documentary. So it's, it, it's crazy the amount of theaters that we're able to kind of get this film out to. And, you know, box office is, unfortunately, for us as filmmakers, is a, is a big indicator for the industry in terms of how long the, the film's going to play in the theaters. So, you know, our hope is that people show up and, and watch the film in, in theaters. Of course, I'm sure eventually we'll, we'll have it on streaming platforms. But while it's in theaters, and we tended, we made it for the theater experience, you know, our hope is just that, yeah, more people turn, you know, show up and, and watch the film there. So that it does, you know, play for longer. Because again, our our hope is that the film kind of you know allows people to ask those questions and and think about probably the most important question that we have as humans, right? What happens after we die? Brilliant, Stephen Gray, director of After Death. I appreciate you being here. Definitely, you guys check it out. I think that is an important part to end it on. It's just to ask the question and philosophize about it. I think it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes you go too deep, but um, I think it's a, there's nothing wrong with asking that question, exploring it more, and. Whatever you determine you think is so, then we move on with that. So, Stephen, thank you again, man, and everyone that tuned in. I'll, I'll share the li any links in regards to Stephen in the film, and y'all can just click below and check out more about his film and what else he's got going on. So thank you all again. Another episode of Dead Talks. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>